is like an English professor having his students read a novel backward. From the first lecture or the first page of the book, we already know how the story ends. If there are any surprises or twists, it is in the minutia, the small details. But ultimately, the juggernaut moves forward to its preordained conclusion. Teaching the past as though it were unchangeable, we call passive history. It is often boring and teaches the minimum about how to deliberate about decisions and choices. The concept of active history is a way of breathing life back into the adventure, to reopen the book on page one and examine how, in the reality of that moment, all things were indeed still possible. Internal logic, consistency, and a rigid adherence to reality must still be maintained. Otherwise, we fall off the track and the work simply becomes an exercise in fantasy. As a result, active history is not as easy as some might assume. In active history, every step has to be defendable in the context of the realities for the period involved. In a fantasy, General George McClellan could have been daring and adventurous. A daring and aggressive McClellan would have indeed defeated Lee at Antietam and might have defeated him in front of Richmond. However, no such daring, aggressive McClellan ever existed. He was driven far more by his fear of failure than the dream of success. To write him otherwise is a denial of everything we know about him and becomes an exercise in fantasy. Furthermore, Lee, faced with a daring McClellan, would have fought an entirely different kind of battle. Another sharp line of demarcation between active history and mere fantasy can be defined as the magic bullet or acts of God. A few examples are McClellan is hit by a stray round at Antietam and a more aggressive general takes command to win the day. Jackson survives Chancellorsville and thus leads a glorious charge to victory at Gettysburg. Lincoln's mother survives the milk sickness, consequently he becomes a minister rather than president. There are, of course, an infinite number of such fantasies one can conjecture. They can be entertaining, but do not fit the definition of active history. The discipline of active history requires logic and solid knowledge of the personalities and turns on issues of leadership and how one individual or group can profoundly change the historic flow with a departure point based on solid facts. Active history requires more historical knowledge than passive history. Passive history merely requires the memorization of facts and dates as they actually occur. Passive history lacks any sense of motivation, option, or choice, the very things that make life stimulating. Passive history does not require any understanding of the subtleties and shadings which are at the heart of decision-making, nor does passive history require a full understanding of the principles and systems which shape and enable events. The greater part of passive history is fulfilled by equally passive and vacuous memorization of facts without meaning and dates without imagination. It is the bane of all those who love history or those who are forced to endure the teaching of it in such a lifeless manner. The result is the passive history is boring. People who are fascinated by gossip, mysteries, the give and take of the political arena, or great works of fiction are wearied by passive history because it has been drained of the imagination and the energy of life. Almost all school textbooks are the boring repetition of passive history. They are long pages of rote learned facts without context or meaning, racing to touch all the necessary political and social bases without any sense of the real drama behind the story. They are exercises in memorization. The result is a rejection of both the discipline of history 
and the very essence of the past lives which have made us who we are today. They deplete all the excitement to be found in our common story. That's history is a term of derision, meaning the topic is dead and irrelevant. The profession of history today has been divided into specializations without life and postmodernism without joy or meaning, complete to the Orwellian rewriting of history to suit modern political agendas. Gone is the great storytelling of classical history that personified the Iliad, Rome, and the creation of our republic. Yet, traditional history is vital for three reasons. First, without knowledge of history, we have a collective amnesia about who we are as a people. To try to understand America without understanding Washington, Franklin, Adams, Hamilton, and Jefferson is an impossibility. Just as you cannot know your own family without knowing something about your parents and grandparents, you cannot know a nation without understanding the symbols and myths which grow out of its historic experience. Second, history creates the context within which events occur. To try to understand Shiite, Sunni, Kurd, and Western relationships in Iraq without a sense of the history of the Middle East is a hopeless process. To try to understand the Democratic Party's modern foreign policy views without understanding the role of Vietnam and McGovern is impossible. Similarly, to try to understand the modern Republican Party without understanding the influence of Reagan is hopeless. If you would understand a person, a community, a company, or a country, you have to situate it in the context of its historic frame of reference. Third, history is the constant enactment of humans facing choices and considering options. Biographies are vital because they design a personal context and a sense of lifelong consequence that can never be learned directly until it is too late. A comparison of Mein Kampf with Churchill's memoirs and of their authors gives us a personal context to the greatest struggle in modern history and shows us as well just how frightful an active history with Hitler triumphant might have been. Both of us have found it interesting to mutually discover our parallel interest in history that date back to childhood. We were both fascinated with our local histories, growing up just a hundred miles apart. And from an early age, our parents took us to historic sites, in many cases to the same places, such as Valley Forge, Philadelphia, and of course, Gettysburg. Both of us in our teenage years discovered and admire to this day Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. Volume 1 of the greatest science fiction series yet written defines the concept of what Asimov called psychohistory. This term was used by Asimov to describe the effort to quantify probabilities based on patterns of human history. He suggested that humans are impossible to predict as individuals, but have broad patterns when studied in large numbers. An individual who can grasp these patterns can thereby shape the future. In some ways, Asimov was describing chaos theory a generation before it was developed by mathematicians. Both of us were fascinated with the notion that you could utilize the lessons of the past to think about options for the future, enabling you to make better decisions in the present. History most definitely can be learned from fiction, whether indirectly through works such as Asimov and even Tolkien, or more directly through writers such as Michael Shara and even George Orwell. 1984 is most definitely an active history. Written right after World War II, projecting the hell totalitarianism might take all of us into forever. That work might very well have been instrumental in saving us 
from such a future history. We have applied how Lee actually fought the Second Manassas, Antietam, and Chancellorsville campaigns to Gettysburg. In the campaigns before Gettysburg, Lee moved on a wide scope and stayed on the offense. He took daring risks and used space and time to dislocate and outmaneuver the Union Army. Across several years, the more time we spent talking with people from the Army War College and walking the ground, the more puzzling the real Battle of Gettysburg became to us. In technical language, Lee's great strength had been operational rather than tactical. Operational art is the ability to define and shape a campaign within which a battle occurs. Tactical art is the ability to fight the particular battle in its immediate time and space. The more one studies Gettysburg, the clearer it is that everyone is mesmerized by a very small space and a very tactical battle. It is as though all the options are contained by this one town and the surrounding hills. There is something about Gettysburg that always seems to draw all of us into it, psychologically and even physically. If you're visiting the battlefield, you will understand the physical. Whether you're driving 100 miles or 2,000 miles to visit that vision place of souls, the moment you first see the word Gettysburg on a road sign as you exit the interstate, your pulse quickens. You are almost there. The towns you pass in that last half hour, Emmitsburg, Tawnytown, Cashtown, and Hanover, become a blur. Why do we ignore all that is around the battlefield? For on the evening of June 28, 1863, Gettysburg was still a future that had not yet taken shape. Why this road rather than another road? Imagine, however, if you place yourself in June of 18...